All right, welcome to the Jigs Up. My name's Darcy, and I, where I'm actually in person with me, <laughs> this guy, Jason has returned, and we're actually doing this in person. Uh, last night we had some technical difficulties, so we're trying our my backup here today, and hopefully it works. The tech man is on the job. <laughs> Something like that. So today is the 28th anniversary of Oka, and uh, I just want to give a big shout out to all the uh, warriors that were there and uh, that started that and were, were are now a piece of Canadian history. Um, well, and really sent a precedent yeah. for, for all resistance that's yeah. been going forward. That probably wouldn't be Standing Rock today uh, if it wasn't for Oka. Absolutely, and I think... Uh, I watched a documentary where they're talking to some of the organizers of Idle No More, and even they were said that their drive came when they were younger and they saw what happened in Oka. That was really the, the part that launched them to the point where eventually they were activists or, or initiators of Idle No More in their area. So, I mean, it, it was a huge thing. It impacted a lot of people. Um, and I know for me here in Alberta, like, I remember my dad, uh, we didn't really talk about it much. I was 15, but it was... You know, it was just uh, them damn Indians are making noise out east. and But he didn't like anybody from out east, so it was kind of just mixed in with the general general dislike for the eastern provinces. Well, that's because if you're in Alberta, we know that nothing good comes from the east. That's right. That's absolutely it, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's my memories of Oka. I mean, I, I didn't even understand why it was, what it was about or what happened. or I didn't even know it was as long as it was. Well, in the dark ages when we when we were kids, you only had the, like the news. Yeah. So if it wasn't on CBC, that's all you got. Yeah, and at fifteen, I wasn't a big CBC fan. Yeah. Or you know the nightly news at six, I wasn't a big fan. Yeah, you weren't turning in tuning into no. Peter Mansbridge. Especially see. summers in Sylvan Lake. Uh, for those who don't know Sylvan Lake, it's a huge tourist place here in Alberta, uh, in central Alberta. So there was not a lot of interest in the news. In the summertime in Sylvan Lake at the beach. A young man of, yeah, 15, 15 at the beach, yeah. Yeah, I had my own mode of transportation. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it was not a high priority. But, uh, you know, learning about it later, it, it's just, I mean, it's heartbreaking to watch the videos now with documentaries and things like that and see what actually happened. I mean, it, same thing with Gustafson Lake, which I think the anniversary of that's coming up soon. You know, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's almost hard to believe that the Canada that I grew up with in all these, you're told all these great things is that Canada that just would do these things. So it, that was really the first time for me, I started to have to reconcile that maybe the history I learned about Canada wasn't the history that actually happened. So for me, that's what Oka really was, was that bursting of the bubble of, you know, the RCMP are great and Canada's awesome. And we are all happy here. And uh, I was like, <laughs> didn't seem that way so well it was for me it was the first time that we'd ever saw really an armed standoff between two groups of people in on the news yeah that's usually stuff you saw in different countries not something that you see here and so really you know looking back on it you know those images resonate but you don't really understand the magnitude of how they impact you till later yeah, yeah absolutely and even now it's heartbreaking like I, I can't it's hard to watch the documentaries and stuff because i mean it's just uh, the things that were done i mean throwing rocks at vehicles and the police just standing there letting it happen i mean it's terrible watching that stuff and it even today um for me it's still hard because it happened in the past i'm like man i can't i still can't believe that this stuff would happen yet 
we're leading into a similar situation with the pipeline protests in the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So and and we just watch the same thing. So you look at the time frame difference between Oka and Standing Rock, and really there's yeah. I mean, you're talking there's a border difference, but the end result is the same. The yes. the position of the government versus Indigenous people is the same, and you watch as the pipeline you know actually takes shape and begins under construction, you're going to see the same thing all over again. Yeah. And so what's really a very sad commentary is that the Canadian state and the Canadian consciousness really hasn't moved anywhere since. Oka. No. Yeah, 28 years, and we are still getting threat. Protesters are getting threatened with military action if they don't move for a pipeline. Yeah. Which, 28 years ago, they were getting threatened with military action for not moving for a golf course resort. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's very sad to see that we haven't made any real progress. And, you know, you talk about these successive governments of liberal, conservative, and liberal, and conservative, and they all do the same thing. Um there was a video I watched recently of Russ Diabo talking at an event about how, you know, some of Trudeau's policies and things like that are just continuations of extinguishing the land uh, and, and your rights to the land, extinguishing uh, Indigenous rights um, under the new terms that of nation-to-nation and reconciliation. But it's really the same policies. So we're not really moving the ball forward. We're... We're still kicking that old ball around of let's get rid of the Indians. Yeah, and I think that's really what it boils down to is the Canadian <laughs> states only ever had one objective, and that is to gain, you know, autonomous control of all the resources. Yeah. And until that happens, and until basically anyone who holds treaty rights or any Indigenous title falls underneath of the Constitution in, in that jurisdiction, they're not going to stop because they can't, no. because it delegitimizes the Canadian state. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we've talked about this before, where if they recognize the nation-to-nation relationship that devalues their justice system, that devalues their government. So on their land that they they now claim is theirs, because it's crown land, they're not going to give up the superiority of that. Um, So it's, it's it's, you know, we're just not going to get there, I don't think, the way, unless there's a drastic change in these governments, but why would they? It's not to their benefit. Well, I think that it would be to their benefit if we saw that the Canadian consciousness as a whole had shifted. True. If the voter had shifted. True. If their education system had shifted. But when we see, you know, a Standing Rock on the news, when we see people talking about the, you know, whether it's mining in Ontario, nuclear waste yeah. disposal, or pipelines, the news media and the perception of what Indigenous people are fighting for hasn't changed in 30 years. Yeah. So the outcome of... of Indigenous negotiations with the federal government can't change. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's true. And I mean, I think even now, if, when, if you see military action on these pipeline protesters, you're going to see just non-Indigenous people out there anti-protesting the protesters and throwing rocks and, and insults just the same as you did 28 years ago. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I agree with you. It's not... The whole society of Canada hasn't really decided to move forward with that. And maybe that's where the work needs to be is with the general population rather than always fighting the government. I don't know. Well, it's a tough thing. I mean, it was a, it should have been a real catalytic moment. What it really mm-hmm. serves today for me is a real eye-opener to the great gulf that lies between Indigenous people and their perspective of the land and this land that we call Canada and the settler population. Yeah. Two very different people, two different yeah. very perspectives coexisting. 
yeah. and really fighting for the the right to the land. Yeah. Well, and, and not recognizing, I guess, the general population of Canada, not recognizing that you could actually share. It's not necessarily one has to be superior over the other. It's we could be looked at as equals. But again, that would unbalance the entire Canadian system, really, because it's bound, it's formed on a superiority. Yeah, on the, on the supremacy of the crown. The challenge is the Canadian populace, like we talked yeah. about before, won't ever get to that understanding of the Indigenous position because it's not in the government's best interest. Yes. You're not going to see that on a government-sponsored news channel. You're not going to see that in government policy. Yeah. If the government, like we talked about before, if the government can't be moved to fix women's rights and, yeah. and equality in gender yeah. under the Indian Act in the year 2018 and moving into the year 2019, yeah. then acknowledging land rights and title and equality with treaty rights we're a long way off of the, to get to back on that horse. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you look at the groups that the government goes to, which is the AFN and the MNC. So those are just lobby groups, though. They don't actually have a real say with anybody. But that's who the government's using because they know they pay them. And they get an answer and they can go, see, but we, we consulted. And I, I remember with the previous conservative government, my, my MP was, he said, we consulted. We talked to the AFN chief. That was our consultation. We're done. And I think, dress it up however you want, I think the liberals are the same way. They have the AFN in a room and they have the MNC in a room. Mm -hmm. And they both dance to their song and, and, and the government's song. And the government says, perfect, you guys are awesome. We'll keep well, funding you. Yeah, it's the consulting. It's no different than yeah. what the, the Edmonton Eskimo guys are doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly, like, yeah. Like, you talk to the people who are going to give you the confirmation bias that you really like. Yes. And they really want. Yeah. So you can go back to the people who are heckling you and boycotting you and saying, I don't know what your deal is because I talked to all these other people and yeah. they all say I'm great. Exactly. Yeah, and that, that is exactly what happened. Yeah. Let's, let's not worry about the people that are upset. Let's go talk to the other people that maybe don't even care. I don't know. But yeah. So it's a, it's a tough thing. And, I, you know, I, in 28 years, I just think we, as a Canadian society, non-Indigenous society, they really haven't learned or, or been asked to grow beyond where they were 28 years ago when it comes to Indigenous issues. Well, and I think that's the challenge. We've gone from armed conflict at Oka to, to trying to settle our differences in court. Yeah. Uh, we spent over $100 million, I believe, under the Harper government in winning. Yes. But what did it really change? So we go from Oka to the mm -hmm. courts. We spend the next 20 to 30 years in court. We win, you know, an innumerable amount of cases. Yeah. But what really changes? Yeah. And, and none of that makes it to the, to the national news other than a news blurby. And so then an, uh, the consciousness of the, the Canadian <clears throat> citizen doesn't change. Yeah. The laws don't change then to encourage that greater understanding. And so this is an ongoing buffer of the government trying to maintain the wall of silence, you know, that cone of silence over Indigenous issues to say, hey, move along. Nothing to see here. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I mean, you look at court cases where we have one. I mean, the Daniels case. But what's really changed since then? So the, the current Liberal government's doing a little more funding. But the Daniels case wasn't about funding. It was about recognition. But there's really no more recognition. All they've done is go to the current Métis organizations that were there that were already their favorite and said, we'll give you more money. 
Well, that isn't that wasn't the principle that Daniels was fighting for for twenty years. Was more funding for the MNC and its affiliates. So even with that victory, the government's still saying, "Well, if you don't like what we're doing, just sue us." You know, we've put some money into the court challenges program. So take that, take us to court. So yeah, you win, and then you say, "Okay, now take action." Nope, take us to court. Mm-hmm. So that twenty years later, you win again, and they go, "Oh, we'll take us to court again and make us do it." And so, how many twenty-year court cases are we going to go through here? Well, then that's just it. And so we see that, and I think that's where you're really looking is people thirty years now after we realized armed conflict at Oka didn't really resolve anything. We go to thirty years later, we realize the court doesn't really solve anything. Yeah. So are we going to go back to armed conflict? Yeah. Because it really seems to be the only message that they understand. Yes. I mean, if you're looking at the amount of troops that were deployed and personnel okay. that were deployed at Oka. You got to wonder at some point if that's not really the only thing that they understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and it's a sad, sad thing. I mean, to think that you'd, you'd have to take up arms against your own government simply and not because they're, you know, they're doing anything violent towards you other than you simply want your rights recognized and respected. In order to get that, you've got to go take up arms. The rights that they agreed to at some point. But they don't never lived up to that, so it's but, a sad reality. Of, of, it, but it really is. But that is the history of colonialism. Yeah. You could move, go look at British history, French history, the Dutch. It doesn't really yeah. matter if the people hadn't revolted. At some point in each one of those societies, they wouldn't have these civilized European countries that they have today. That's true. You know, look at the French. Yeah. They, you know, they had to overthrow. Absolutely. And so that's very much the model that the Canadian government works on, and we see that very much. When you go across the south of the line, there, yeah. our American cousins are much more ready to pick up arms yeah. in in defense of what they feel are their rights. Yeah, as long as it's not indigenous, though. The indigenous aren't a lot allowed to use arms. Yeah, that's bad. you know, militias will go support a cattle rancher in Nevada, but they won't go support. <laughs> yeah, you know, the indigenous at Standing Rock. So, yeah, no, it's uh, it's a sad reality of our, our our life here, and I mean. I've been really trying to pay attention a lot to uh, the governments or, or even just general, uh, the way people are talking and things like that, the language that's used. And a lot of conversations I hear about between non-Indigenous people or from the government is very much with no re- relevance to Indigenous people. Like The history of Indigenous people here is not even considered part of a conversation. So, um, you know, I listen to podcasts. And they talk about, well, the history and blah, blah, blah. And they talk about history. But they purpose, I don't know if they purposely do it. They just don't. It's just ingrained in them not to do it. But it kind of writes out Indigenous history as not part of this history. So Canada's history has nothing to do with Indigenous history. It's two separate things. And so, and I've just noticed that a lot in the language. And I think that's, I mean, that's a huge barrier. Because people just don't even consider an Indigenous perspective at any point in time, but even in, when you talk about history, yeah. But in all honesty, what about what about Canada has to do with Indigenous people? That's what I mean. Can, Canada yeah. was formed by settlers. It was formed yeah. partly by the Métis people who who liaison, yeah, and the fur trade. But really, Canada as a state, as a country, is a European settling this land. Yes. that really doesn't have anything to do with Indigenous people. Yeah, and and, and, and so they that's but that's the narrative they stick to. Yes, and they don't. So you're stuck with that narrative. There's never the conscious understanding or the conscious teaching that there was another group of people yes. who lived here. Exactly. And we're thriving. 
they weren't just nomads wandering around. They actually had economies. They actually had trade routes. They were thriving. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they had cities in some places. Um, and that's what I mean. You listen to that language and you realize how completely cut off the general population is from understanding. When you talk about the history on this land, they're talking about the history from Europe to here, mm-hmm. not here and then Europe to here. And then when you look at what the government does, ever they make decisions every day that have no thought put into how that might affect indigenous people. Um, you know, Saskatchewan government shut down the bus service and that really affected indigenous people in communities that need that bus service. Mm-hmm. Now we got Greyhound shutting down, which is an even bigger kick. That's a bigger kick. Yeah. Um, and that's going to hugely impact indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And you know, is the, is the government involved in those conversations? What's going to be done? I don't know. How how are we going to deal with these these issues now? I mean, there's people in northern communities need to get places for health care, and they can't. So, are the provincial health care bodies going to pay for taxis for 500 kilometers? <laughs> well, I think it goes to show though the the colonial model of economics yeah. is that the majority of the money has to go to service the majority of the people. And more and more, those people are living in urban centers. Yes. Which means by definition of the model, that if you live in a remote place and you live on the land, you're going to be marginalized. And as Canada's economy continues to struggle and become more urban, it's going to be that that prejudice and that gap is going to widen. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really, I mean, it's a sad state of affairs, but... um... You know, it's, it's kind of a double kick to Saskatchewan with the whole grain out shutting down. But, yeah, I guess. It, it is. And I think that's the challenge, though, when you, you have so many of these, what we call essential services, but they're privatized. Yes. These people own these assets to make money. And yeah. it's largely become unprofitable. So you can't fault the business owner when you're saying, well, I can't run a deficit. No. But at the same time, this is the problem with this capitalistic market we live in is the bus is an essential service. Well, and, and I think that's the problem too. With I mean, obviously with government, there's so many problems where they don't they don't care how they run it. They're gonna just spend a ton of money, and if it doesn't work, well then whatever. Yeah. So you look at like the Saskatchewan bus service. There's probably a hundred different ways that you could have made that more efficient or co- less costly, but still provide a service. Um, but they just well, if we can't run fifty two buses, well then we're not gonna do it at all. And that's kind of the government mentality is like, it's all or nothing. Um, and if we, if we can't have a huge bureaucracy behind something, then what's the point of having, you know? Um, so it's pretty sad. Um, and then uh, lately we, I noticed, uh, I was out in Regina a couple of weeks ago at the camp and I noticed that the Saskatchewan, they did meet with the justice minister and a few other MLAs, I think after I was there, but now the justice minister came out and said that, until they show good faith of removing their camp and leaving, he's not going to meet with them because he needs a show of good faith. And I think this kind of goes along with the whole conversation we're having of that's a very colonial mentality because what is good faith? So is it good faith doing whatever you tell them to do? Or is good faith the thousands of missing and murdered women that these guys are having this camp for? The injustices of Colt Bushy and Tina Fontaine that the camp is there for. Is that not good enough faith? So, I, I I don't know. That's a very colonial mentality. of. But it is. And again, just reinforces, though, that they have this 
you know, crown to to citizen yes. uh, mentality. And once you're a politician, you are on the side of the crown, the government. Yeah. Everyone else is a citizen, and you got to toe the line. So it always is on the onus of the citizen in the British system to, yeah. you know, give the government that extra leeway. When in all reality, what good faith should we be showing the government in these cases? Exactly. None. We did show them good faith. We let the government do due do process. We let this yeah. court system take its course, and it failed. Completely. And now, now that these people are, are doing their level best to, to bring some accountability to the issue, their best response from the government is, we need more good yeah. faith. Exactly. Exactly. It's And that's the problem. And I mean, that's where you see this whole, all of this nation-to-nation talk doesn't exist. Yeah. It, it is just um, meaningless words to them. It's smoke and mirrors. It's great politics to get reelected. Exactly. It's it's sound clips on the news, mm-hmm. and they can smile and shake the hand of the AFN and the MNC and talk about nation-to-nation. But what does that mean? It doesn't actually mean nation-to-nation. Well, um, it's like anything in legalese. It means whatever you want it to mean. Exactly. And in this case, it's going to mean whatever the government of Canada wants it to yeah. mean. Which really means government to lobby group. Yeah. And, uh, you know, their land plan right now where they want to convert the reservations. And this is the same land plan they've had for years, for decades. Of No, you can have total control as long as you go to a fee simple process. You agree to hand out these lots to everybody and they own that lot. And there's no communal property anymore. Because that ends the reservation. Mm-hmm. And once you've done that, now, 20 years later, guess what? We can buy and sell all of that land now, and Canada owns it all. Canada has authority over it all. Well, it'll trade all back in, into private citizens' hands. Exactly. Which is what they want, because then it falls under the tax, falls under the provincial government, yep. and does all these things, which is what they want at the end of anything, is the assimilation of all Indigenous people off of those lands, back out from under treaty and under the crown. Exactly. And I, I was, t- I had talked to a fellow who did some history up in the Conklin area. He actually talked about how they did exactly that in Conklin. At one point in time, the government of Alberta said, "Holy crap! There's some Métis dudes, people hanging out over in the bush over there, and they're not paying taxes. They're not. They're living off the land for free. Oh my god!" So they went over and they said, "Okay, we're going to divide this all up in lots, and we're going to give you a lot. I think it was like we'll, we'll give it to you for a dollar." So everybody's like, "Great! I'll buy this lot." But what they didn't tell them is that they would have to then pay property taxes and they would have to. And as soon as the tax bills came, of course, people were like, well, I don't make a living because I live off the land. So I can't pay my property tax. And the government went, oh, well, I guess that land comes back to us now because you forfeited on your taxes. Now that property's ours. And here we are years later with a housing crisis in Conklin where people can't even get lots because now they're $300,000 for an empty lot. And you're sitting there going, well, but the mate, we gave the land to the Métis and they, they gave it back to us. So I think that's the same thing. They're hoping that they do all this and they give it out to people and then they can't afford it. So they forfeit. They either forfeit or they sell it into the private world. And it just which, comes. Which happens when, it, I mean, yeah. it's inevitability in a lot of places. People have to move because of work. People die and, and things can't adequately get Absolutely. passed down. There's reasons for that to happen. And For it's sure. not necessarily some real subversive thing from the government, but the government knows what due process will take place. And they're willing to wait the 10, 20, 30 years, quite clearly, yeah. for this game of attrition to make sure that all Indigenous people move off and that land comes back under Crown control. 
absolutely. And and it, once it's once it's in a fee simple process, really their job is done because mm-hmm. they, they they're not even going to hold their breath. They they just know one day that land will be sold to non indigenous or whoever, mm-hmm. and it will be just in the public domain like all of the other surveyed land in this. And then so land. so will the indigenous person living on the land. Yes, they will be enfranchised, mm-hmm. and they will be be a Canadian, a good Canadian now. And that's that's the process they're pushing on people right now. And I mean, we had Rachel Snow on the show, and she talked about that. Uh, I listened to Rusty Abo talk about the exact same thing. And, uh, you know, like he said, you can dress it up however you want, use all these terms, do a 10-point reconciliation system that the Liberal government's come up with now. You can split INAC into different parts. But it all it's all the same. Mm-hmm. And... It's all with the extermination of rights to land. Yeah, it's a big circus show. We got a three yeah. ring circus going on. Well, two rings now. Two ring circus yeah. going on, and we we got the uh, you know they're they're wheeling out all the ponies and all the, yeah. the show, and uh, all the circus acts to to sell this. Absolutely, and and the worst part for me is that groups like the AFN and the MNC, they 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 don't really care. They're getting paid. They make their money, so they're just going right along with it. And to not look 40 years ahead and go, oh, geez, this is going to have dire consequences. I mean, obviously, they're not doing that. And it, it I don't know how people can't see how those organizations are, are totally colonized, completely well, colonial controlled. And how that kind of leadership isn't, isn't traditional leadership. It's not traditional governments. Yeah. We see that it's really colonial-style politics, we have people who say they're Indigenous in these organizations who are really just out to get reelected for another term. Yeah. So they can collect that paycheck, they can sit in that office, they can travel, like we've talked about before, on those really good budgets. Yeah. Uh, with that kind of money, and to really do what? Exactly. You know, we talk, going back to the Daniels case, for all the money that the MNC's got, who's getting real health benefits? Yep. Where's your life insurance? Where's yeah. your kid's dental? Yeah. You know, we've got some housing, but that's under the MNC's control, and we haven't seen how that's going to be rolled out to, to like you said, to deal with housing crisis and conflict. Yeah. Will that money actually hit the ground before the Liberals are out and we see budget cuts? Who knows? We don't know. And I don't suspect. I, I have a very cynical view of all that, obviously. Everybody <laughs> knows. But uh, but that that's exactly it. Um, I mean, where where does this all lead? When they're just saying yes to everything and taking money, um, I just read today that uh, president of the MNC was off talking to the UN about biodiversity, um, and I thought, well, that's great to talk about biodiversity of our plants and animals. Um, but did he get approval from his members to fly off to the UN, which is in a fairly expensive city? Go to a special thing, stay at the big hotels, eat the fancy dinners, to talk about biodiversity when his people at home are having housing crises? Is that really what... Because for me, I would have a hard time with that. Personally. Um, You're supposed to lead people, but you're off talking about biodiversity, which is a great topic. But in the grand scheme of, of Métis issues, I don't think it ranks high. I mean... Biodiversity is great, but how do you go hunting in Conklin when industry owns all the land around you and you can't fire your gun around industry? Well, or the thing is, if did they go to the UN to show how much pressure the Canadian, you know, ecosystem is under, mm-hmm. and that we're rapidly losing all of our biodiversity to do yeah. the foresting processes? 
Yeah. I doubt it. No, I Did they go there to chastise the UN our logging practices, our reforestation processes, our forest spraying no. policies, you know, the endangered caribou? Yeah. Probably not. No. You know, you don't see the report where they come back and say, oh, yeah, I got this endorsement from the UN for all the crap they're doing wrong. <laughs> exactly. Well, and the extinguishment of, of hunting rights in Saskatchewan mm-hmm. of Indigenous people. I mean, what are you not fighting? Why are you in Saskatchewan fighting for those rights? I mean, if you're the head of a national organization and part of your national organizations lose their rights and you're not in that province fighting for it, what are you doing? But you're off with the UN talking about biodiversity. Like, that's lovely. And in a, in a world where we all had our rights and we all had recognition and we all had these things and the Canadian government recognized us as nations and respected us, let's go off to the UN and talk about biodiversity then. But we're so far away from that being really, truly um, a day-to-day matter for people. I mean, there's so many people still in survival mode, let alone... Oh, well, let's go talk about biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's people who can't be- basically make it month to month who are yeah. living in shamble conditions. You know, we have a huge geographical landmass like Saskatchewan where yes. people's rights have been negated. Yeah. And part of the problem, I really think, is is it government funding. Anybody who has any in, you know knowledge of how these nonprofits work is that you can only spend the money on what the government allocates it for. So the MNC had an application in to get funding to send a representative down there and spend all that money on the government's dime to do that, and the government approved it. Yes. And so they had to spend it on that. Yeah. But, again, it's about priorities. It's about saying, okay, so what's the purpose of these organizations? Exactly. It's to get paid. Yeah. It's to travel. It's to go talk to the UN about biodiversity on behalf of the Métis people when the Métis people in themselves didn't fund that. That wasn't a mandate. And so if you're talking about governance, how is that accountable? Yeah. How did the membership get to vote on the policies and procedures that were put in place for funding, how it was applied for, and what it could Absolutely. be applied and how it was used? Yeah. Well, I mean, they, the, the memberships in these provinces don't even get to vote to elect them. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Why would they get to vote to do say what he where he goes and what he does? I yeah. mean, but it, it's, it's the ridiculousness of these colonial organizations claiming to be governments. And they, they switch between whatever works for them. For example... Uh, I'm trying to set up a thing in Region 3 for a all-candidates forum where Métis Nation of Alberta members can come and they can ask their Métis Nation candidates questions about, well, what do you feel about this? What are some issues? What a novel concept. Right? I mean, it only happens every four years on a municipal, provincial, and a federal level in the government of the, mm-hmm. the Canadian system. And so I all of the candidates agree, except for the one person that's already working for the MNA who's running for president of Region 3. And his response was, no, I'm not interested at all. That was it. It was a five-word conversation. So if they're not interested in what their members want to ask them or talking to their members, then it's very clear they don't care. They're they're not there to care. They're there to make grant proposals, get grants, and do whatever they want. And I think that's the real problem with a lot of the accountability that goes on is you go to the whole, I mean, you and I aren't big MA fans. No, but again, no. we believe in accountability, transparency, and yes. if you're going to talk the talk, then you should walk it. And here you've gone to this whole effort of providing that opportunity that in every other form and level of government goes on. You, you see that 
in your in the city of Calgary. Absolutely. They have those things. I can yeah. you come out to Whitecourt. You can go see when they're going to get elected. Yeah. They have an open forum. You can go ask to be the liberal and the conservative. and anybody Absolutely. The, the communist party guy. The... Yeah, they're all there. <laughs> exactly. All the, the mainline guys and the crazies. They're all there in the same room and you can ask them the questions. Absolutely. And find out what flavor you love best. Yeah. But somehow we talk about accountable governance and we talk about transparency and how the MA says it's real governance. Yeah. But yet when it comes to doing real governance things, according to its model... The people who are in charge say, well, no thanks. Exactly. So there's there's no accountability on where they travel, how they travel, where they spend their money on their expense accounts. There's no accountability on whether they even show up to answer questions from their members. They don't care. Like his response was, no, I'm not interested. But how can you not be interested to talk to your members? Because I'm not doing this because I'm a member. I'm doing this because I want their members to talk to their candidates and i think it's really sad that i'm the one organizing it to be honest with you i mean if and i've, I've said we've said this before on other podcasts if the mna was accountable if the mnc was accountable transparent and offered this information to their members we wouldn't even have a podcast to do we, we'd be maybe we'd interview metis people that's what our podcast <laughs> would be but the truth is is because they don't because they go no not interested yeah, they're not accountable on any level. They don't talk yeah. about their budgets. They don't talk about their spending. They don't talk about what they are, how they work, what they go to, what they're for. So when you and I sit down and we go through their budget line items, we talk about travel. Yes. But we're talking about it from an outside perspective because their doors are shut. Absolutely. If they were, like you said, coming out and telling us what, what that was going for and why they did that, we'd have a very fluffy show. <laughs> Absolutely. And they don't even have to tell us. Tell your own members. Yeah. But the members can't get that information. No, and they so, don't even get returned phone calls. And so it really strikes me that when you create the opportunity to have an all candidates forum, uh, which every riding, every region, anybody yep. who's running should be attending and should be promoting and should be hosting. Yes, it shouldn't be an anomaly that you did. Exactly, it, it should be the norm. Yeah, because that's how due process works. Absolutely. You know, at the very least, you think the person who's in office trying to get reelected would be coming down to sell you the bill of goods. And what yeah. they're going to do for the next four years. Exactly. exactly. And they're like, no, I'm good. I don't have to tell you what I'm doing for another four years. I didn't tell you what I did for the last four. Yeah. Well, he's been vice president for how long? And yeah. yeah. So there's that level of arrogance where I think they believe that, no, it doesn't matter. I'll just win because I'll get my hundred friends to show up at the polls. And I know these other guys won't. But I think in certain regions, I think that's going to change this year. But at the same time, is that really going to amount to enough change? Because if... You change 70% of the people there, but you still have Audrey at the helm, and you still have that old guard up there at the top at Edmonton. What changes? Well, and you and I both know, we've been around it with Robert's Rules long enough, that when you're talking about bylaws, and what you yeah. can do and you can't do, and yeah. you're trying to get a motion passed, and you're trying to repeal something or change something in that bureaucratic system, you find out what real colonial government is really all about. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the... You know, I also found out something interesting about elections, too, is you can actually hire Elections Canada or election. I think you can hire Elections Alberta as well to run an election for you. So, you know, we've talked about the technology. Okay, you can go online and do these elections for like, I don't know, I think we priced it out at about 10 grand. Okay, if that's not safe enough for you, you're still unsure about this whole Internet web thing and how safe that is. So then just go hire Elections Canada. 
say, look, we got this selection. Here's our $20,000. Run our provincial election for us. But even if you, I mean, the reality is if you can apply to the government for funding to go talk to the UN, yes. why can't you apply for the government to help you with an election? So if it costs you a million dollars, it costs you a million dollars. Well, and that's the thing. They get money from the government for an election. Yeah. I think it's like, I think the last budget was like $80,000. So what is that $80,000 for? Mm. Well, in my books, it should be to pay Elections Canada or whoever to run that election. But, you, you but that I, would be third party and accountable. Yeah, but you and I both know at the at one level. On one hand, the MA wants to tell you that it's plastic is real and valid ID. Yes. And it works hard to do that. Yes. Well, if it's real and valid ID, then it carries all the same things that your driver's license does. Yes. Which means if anybody who knows is worth their salt, and you and I can do this, and we're no gurus of the internet, can look at election software, yeah. that ID can be used in total secrecy and validation for online elections. Yes. So even remote communities could be engaged in polling. Absolutely. And by God, I hope more than a thousand people turn out at the next election. Well, and that's the thing, and you know, you want to talk about accountability, you want to talk about transparency. What's more transparent than hiring a third-party company who has no interest and cares very little to nothing about what your election is about to run the election, tally the numbers, and send you the result? Well, that's how real it's governments. All done. That's how real governments do do it. Exactly. Because uh, elections Alberta and even elections Canada aren't run by the government. Exactly. Those are arms length. Things. Yeah, yeah. There's checks and balances in there, and because they... well, because the reality is when an election's called, then there's no government. Yeah, exactly. And so elections in Alberta, because I work there and I've worked for the federal, they they don't work for the government. Yeah, they're not because there is no government. Yeah, because there isn't one. Yeah, and so I think that's the reality. Is if we're, if it was a real government, if the MNA was a real government, if the MNC was a real government, they would have third party elections because that's what real governments do. Yeah, because they would dissolve the moment mm -hmm. they called the election. Mm -hmm. That Audrey would be not being Madame President anymore. No. Um, the other thing that I think is hilarious is the fact that she's out there campaigning on M&A money. Well, all the other candidates have to spend their own money. And because I, I know when I was in Conklin listening to her do a, a town hall speech, long before the election was called, she started campaigning and saying, you know, if when I'm reelected, this is what I plan on making sure that you guys get housing. When I'm elected, I plan on making sure this happens. So she's out there making campaign promises six months before anybody else because know, she knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. And she's getting paid to travel around because they applied for grants from the government to travel around the province and do these town hall meetings. But meanwhile, she gets to campaign at every town hall meeting, which really isn't fair and equal. Um, she should have to raise her own money separate be completely separate from her job, mm -hmm. but it's not. Yeah. You know? But that's because we know it's not real government. It's exactly, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a non-profit right. corporation that says they're a government. Yeah, that wants to tell you that. It sells you a piece of plastic that says citizenship on it and you believe it. Yeah. So, well, uh, The last uh, interesting thing I had, and this is actually kind of, well, it's funny in a way. Um, they're re thinking of redoing the Municipal Elections Act here in Alberta. And so the government of Alberta has a survey right now. You can go and answer a bunch of questions of what you think should be changed. One of them was the ID. Here's all the valid forms of identification on a municipal that the Municipal Elections Act recognizes. One of those cards is your Métis Nation of Alberta card. 
But nowhere on there was your Indian Act status card. So the status card that the government of Canada issues is not recognized on the municipal level as valid ID to go to the polls with. And I was like, Arf. so, <laughs> I, I just, you know, we're talking about colonial governments. I'm like, you, you guys can't even use your own ID? Like, but it really shows. It, it really shows how did the MNA get get their membership on there? Lobbying. Yes, they lobbied the provincial government to have their ID do that. Absolutely. And the reality is, you and I both know if our membership, if we hit that twenty or thirty thousand mark in membership in our organization, we too could lobby the government yep. to have it on that list. Does that make my ID valid for who's Métis and who's not? No. No. It makes it valid if you want to vote. Exactly. All it does is say. This is a valid form to say your name is Jason and yeah. here's your picture. Yeah. And you live at this address. And I am who I say. It has nothing to do with yeah. my indigenous no, identity. No, not at all. And I think people get confused. Absolutely. They think, well, the government of Alberta is backing this membership card as a valid form of your indigenous identity. Yeah. And I think that's a leap too far. It is. Especially when you look at the list of IDs. There's a lot on there that are like, I mean, you can get somebody to sign for you still. Mm-hmm. So... Really, it's not an encompassing list. It's not a very strict list of IDs. It's like, ah, whatever. If you got a club card, you can use your Costco club card if it's got a picture. Mm-hmm. It's almost on that level. Pretty much. So I thought, I just thought it was funny. There's no, you know, your Indian Act status card isn't good enough to be on that list. But uh, See, the, a- <laughs> the AFN is letting its membership down. Yeah, what kind right. of a crappy lobby group is yeah, that? Exactly. <laughs> so that's, uh, I don't know, that's all I had this week. Um it's a bit shorter podcast because we got backup equipment and we uh, have a limited time. So, Otherwise, it's always limited time. We could go for hours. Oh, yeah. If, if we set up a mic and a computer with endless recording, we could record for 10 hours, I think. Next time we take a trip to Saskatchewan, it'll be a six-hour show. <laughs> That's right. We'll just break it up in chunks. Yeah. It'll be seven episodes in a row. <laughs> Every time, we got to stop for gas. <laughs> right on. All right, guys. Well, until next time. Uh, get out there and uh, check us out on Patreon. The link will be in the description. Um, and, you know, pledge a dollar or more if you like the show. If you don't, uh, just send us feedback at metispodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, uh, get out there and be good ancestors. And until next week, the jig is up. You are the spark that's starting a fire that will spread across this land.